it only seems fitting as Baptist in a Baptist church that so we start our new year looking at John the Baptist, right? I am, of course, kidding. Um, despite some of the faux histories that are out there, John the Baptist was not the first Baptist. Um, but I think it's pretty cool that there is at least one person in the Bible with the last name the Baptist and uh, no one else with the last name the Presbyterian or the Lutheran or the Methodist. Just shows that God loves Baptists most. Just kidding. But anyway, um, <laughs> John would have made a terrible Baptist, by the way. Can you see John at a potluck? I mean, locusts and honey, really? I mean, that would be the dish that would not uh, be partook of. I mean, he would walk home with a dish as full as it was when he left the house. And so, um, so we're continuing our walk through the book of John, and we have landed on a section where the central character is a different John than the author of the book. Um, as Troy said last week, this is crazy John which I appreciated that title. Many people would, thought, would have thought the, the very same thing. Uh, he's the last of the Old Testament prophets. And this morning we're going to kind of look at John the Baptist and his testimony. But before we get started with our passage, I just want to kind of start this by saying that uh, every year the elders, there's been kind of a theme in this whole service, if you haven't noticed, we're kind of talking about the focus of 2023. So every year we kind of pick a focus for the year. And it's usually kind of centered around our mission statement of knowing God and making him known together. So in the past, we've said things like, we will know God and make him known together through prayer. And so the, the focus that year was on prayer and, and other things like that. And so in 2023, we are including in our, our entire mission statement in our focus with a little math twist. So if you're a fan of math, how many of you are a fan of math? All right. Bunch of engineers, I know, it's crazy. But, uh, you know, uh, if you're a fan of math, then you'll enjoy our focus for 2023, which is knowing God, excuse me, I, I got to do the mirror thing, knowing God, plus making Him known equals discipleship. So that's going to be our focus. We're going to have a focus on discipleship, but we're going to say knowing God plus making him known equals discipleship. Now, Pastor Troy will, of course, spend much, much more time kind of unfolding this focus, but we're going to spend 2023 kind of training and being disciple makers. If you are or wish to be a disciple maker, then both of these elements must be true of you, right? In order to achieve God's kind of full-orbed uh, vision for discipleship, you have to have, first of all, self-discipleship, in other words, knowing God. So you have to be at reading your Bible, praying, studying His Word, applying it to your life, and that sort of thing. But you also must have, if you want to call these adens, you know, kind of as your math terminology, you have knowing God, but you also have making Him known. And so you have to share the knowledge that you have of God, the gospel, those kinds of things, with the people around you and make disciples around you. And therefore, that would be God's equation for discipleship. So you don't see much in our passage this morning about John the Baptist's pursuit of knowing God. You know, you don't necessarily see uh, 
John the Baptist's plan for discipleship or something along those lines. But we can be assured, you know, he had a solid foundation because, you know, we know from Luke uh, chapter 1 that John was born not only to faithful parents, but he was born in a kind of a priestly family. His father was a, was a priest. We also know it's, you know, um, that uh, unlike anybody on the planet, John was unique in a sense that he was full of the Holy Spirit from birth, and that is not true of anyone in human history other than Christ. But it's also, a, you know, not a stretch to think that John's living in the wilderness for years was, you know, kind of like a, a, a divine field trip. He hopped in the bus and he left to learn something. That's what a, what a field trip does. And so this is a divine field trip where he lives in the wilderness so that he can learn more about who God is and to become fully equipped for the special mission God has for him. But we do see, and then what we're going to look at this morning in our passage this morning, we do see that, that John the Baptist was all about making Christ known. And I don't think we have to follow all of John the Baptist's methods in knowing God and making Him known. We certainly aren't necessarily mandated to sell everything we have and go live in the wilderness, right? <laughs> amen. Someone amen that. Um, we, you know, we're not necessarily mandated to wear camel skin and leather belt, but we are, like John, I think mandated or can see things from his testimony that will help us in kind of upping our game, as it were, on this area of discipleship in 2023. So when we look at John's life and testimony, here are some things that we see, okay? So first of all, we see this. Usually I'll say letter number one or other things like that, but this is kind of point number one in our notes, and that is this. Pointing others to Christ leaves no room for arrogance or self-promotion. Okay, so, so pointing others to Christ leaves no room for arrogance or self-promotion. Other than his wild ways, which we know, he lived in the wilderness, that sort of thing, locusts and honey, perhaps maybe his infamous death, we know the, the beheading of John on the, the platter, so to speak, maybe he, even his, uh, you know, in-the-womb gymnastics, as he kind of hears the voice of Mary and starts doing cartwheels in his mother's tummy. Other than those things, John is really just known for kind of mainly two statements. One of the statements is in our passage here in verse 29 where he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we will look at this statement in just a moment, but that second statement that John is really known for comes later in John where in reference to Jesus, John the Baptist says in John chapter 3 verse 30, he says, He must increase but I must decrease. This really was John the Baptist describing the mission of his heart. The entire goal of John's life was to be an arrow pointing to Jesus. We see this in our passage this morning in verses 19 through 28. And so we're going to kind of look at a couple of things in verses 19 through 28 that will, will, will help us see this, this, this arrow-like focus on pointing others to Christ. The first thing is John was famous. 
Okay, so letter number A, John was famous. Verse 19 says, and this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Okay, so we have this, these Jews who have sent a delegation to John, and, and so the Jews probably in this case were the Pharisees, because verse 24 says they had been sent from the Pharisees. There's a possibility he might, they might have been sent from the entire Sanhedrin, which would be the religious governing body, but the Pharisees were the main force behind sending this delegation. And folks, if you have a delegation sent to you from the local religious or governing authorities, chances are you're being noticed, right? I mean, if John was preaching and baptizing by the Jordan, and let's say he had an audience of five, five faithful people that showed up there and, and, and that was it, you know, they would have called, called, you know, John something like, oh, he's just the little troublemaker in the, you know, to the east of us. Don't, don't bother with him. Five followers, what's that going to do? No. We know that there was way more people that went to see John. In fact, in Matthew 3, it talks about the crowds that John was attracting. In verses 5 and 6, it says, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, that's a lot more than five, right? This does not necessarily mean that like entire cities were just up and running out to John or something like that, but it does mean that there were so many people over a period of time that were heading out to John that it seemed like entire regions, entire cities, and that sort of thing were going out there. If they used the vernacular that we use today, they would say something like, John's, John would probably be a rock star, right? John, John would be someone who was very famous. But not only that, the second thing is John's fame was not his focus. It should be pointing out that this delegation comes to try and find out who John thinks he is, right? And when, when they ask the first question, they say, who are you? In verse 19, John tells them who he is not. John is more concerned with who he isn't than with who he is. He says, I am not the Messiah. And so there were probably at that time rumors that were starting to swell that, that, that you know, could John be the Messiah? You know, massive crowds are coming to him, that sort of thing. Could this be the guy who is coming? And John's motivation, though, for saying, I am not Christ, I am not the Christ, I am not the Messiah, was not to avoid political controversy. John knew there was an actual Christ coming. He knew that that was the entire, you know, purpose for his life was to point people to this coming Christ, and so he knew that it would be incredibly blasphemous to attempt to steal any of his glory. So they continued their questioning in verse 21 when they said, you know, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. He said no to the question of being Elijah because he was not some kind of reincarnated version of Elijah. And you say, well, didn't there a prophecy that says Elijah's supposed to come? And didn't they say that when he was born, he was going to be Elijah? Doesn't Jesus say later that he is Elijah? Yes, all of that is true, but he's saying basically by, well, let's go back to when he was being born, they said that he would operate in the power 
and the spirit of Elisha. And so clearly, this idea of this prophecy that Elijah would come, you know, at the consummation of the age, at the end of time, and that sort of thing, could be fulfilled by someone other than Elijah, but someone operating in the power of Elijah, and that would be John. So John was not lying. He was saying that I am not Elijah because he wasn't Elijah in the flesh. The prophet, on the other hand, was Jesus. He said, are you not the prophet? And he said, I am not. This prophet is one that Moses prophesied in Deuteronomy, where Moses said, you know, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him you shall listen to. And this prophecy was applied at least twice in the book of Acts to Jesus himself. And so they say, are you the prophet? And he says, I am not. The prophet was Jesus. It was not John. But John's lack of focus on his own fame is really seen in two amazing ways in verses 22 through 28. Okay, and so the first thing is John says, I am only a voice. And you can almost hear the exasperation from this delegation in, 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 in verse 22 when they say to him, you know, he's like, are you this? Are you that? Are you this? Are you that? And he's like, no, 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 no. And then you're kind of like, well, who are you? You know, in verse 22, they say, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Come on, John, give us an answer. John says in verse 23, he says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John did not say, you know, something like, just kidding, I am Elijah. <laughs> Surprise. You know, John didn't even claim to be a prophet in that situation, although he was a prophet. He didn't even say, I'm a human being. He just said, I'm a voice. Which really kind of points to the fact that John wasn't the important thing to John. It was the message that John was sharing that was the important thing. By saying, I am a voice, he's saying that the voice is the thing that's the most important thing. What the voice is saying is the thing that we ought to be focusing on here. Don't focus on me. Don't focus on what I'm all about or anything like that. Focus on what I am saying here. I am only a voice. The message is the most important thing. But not only that, just to kind of seal the deal that John was not about his own fame, the second thing is, I am lower than a slave. Verse 25 says, they asked him, then why are you baptizing, baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered, then am I baptized with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where, Jordan, where John was baptizing. Their question on baptism basically was a question about authority. They said, well, if you're not Elijah, and you're not this guy, and you're not this guy, what authority do you have to be baptizing people into this, you know, kingdom of repentance that you've been preaching for so long? And John probably didn't give them the answer they were looking for. But again, he takes the opportunity to point them to someone who is coming that has greater authority. He says to them, there's someone coming after me, whose strap of whose sandal I am unworthy to untie. Now, here's a question for you. In that time period, who was worthy to untie a person's sandals? 
a slave. A slave was. Technically a house slave. Okay, you had a bond slave sometimes, and then you would have a house slave. So if you were a slave owner, many people, many of them were, you would kind of come into a house, and a slave would remove your sandals, and then they would kind of wrap themselves with kind of this long towel and wash your feet, which is a huge image for us when we come around to John 13. Stay tuned for that. And then you would have dinner. And that's what a slave would do. It would be a slave's right, if you want to call it a right, but it would be a slave's responsibility to be the one to remove the straps and to remove the shoes and to wash the feet. But John says that this one coming is so great, there's no comparison. Everyone is lower than a slave. Everyone is lower than a slave. You might say, well, wait a minute. Everyone, really? I mean... This is just kind of a desert prophet talking, for goodness sakes. This is just some guy in the woods, kind of half out of his head, you know, or something like that. This is crazy, John, as you said. You know, this is the guy who's saying this. How on earth can you say everyone is lower than a slave in this situation? Maybe, maybe it was just John. I mean, maybe it was that guy. But remember what Christ said about John in Luke 7, 28. He says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. So here's John, the greatest man, born of women, which pretty much includes every man. He's the greatest of us, and he's the one who's saying, I'm not worthy to touch his sandals on his dirty feet. So we have the greatest man rightfully acknowledging that all men, all mankind, is lower than slaves in the presence of the King of kings and Lord of lords. Again, it's another great picture that if we want to make him known, okay, if we want to be disciples and disciple makers, if we want to make him known, we must make ourselves. we must make our desires, our importance, our notoriety, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We make everything about ourselves, we must make ourselves less known. In order to make Christ more known, we must be less known. And so, what needs to decrease in my life so that Christ might increase would be an excellent question to ask yourself regularly in 2023. What needs to decrease about me in order for Him to increase? And then we should evaluate ourselves at the end of each month, let's say, or maybe at the end of each quarter, or let's say at the end of each, maybe at the end of the year with this question, did he increase more? Because I decreased more. You know, was Christ more magnified in my life because I got up an hour earlier and read my Bible more? Was Christ more magnified in my life because I, had the, I, I drummed up the courage to be a little bit more bold in sharing Christ with my coworkers? Was Christ more magnified in my life because when you, you know, look at the digits in my checking account, more is given towards missions, towards ministry, and other things like that? Have I decreased in order for him to increase? Because he won't, folks. He may. You know, I love the, it's not biblical truth necessarily. It's a song. 
but I love the line in this song by a guy named Dan Smith, if you could have even more plain a name, but um, a guy named Dan Smith that said, as I pondered the truth that I almost missed, that perhaps for such a time as this, the sovereign God has put me where I am. And if I will not give my all, if I will not fulfill my call, he'll simply find another man who can. And so you may not decrease, but he will always increase. He'll just simply find someone else in which to increase. But what about you? Will you decrease so that he might increase? Because we see this in the testimony and life of John the Baptist. Second point. Pointing others to Christ is wonderful. Pointing others to Christ is wonderful. Now, what I don't mean by wonderful is the word nice. Okay? For instance, when someone says, oh, your house is wonderful, what do they mean by that? Generally, they mean your house is clean, it's cozy, it's homey, it's fun, it's welcoming, you know, something along those lines. These things that are, that are nice things, that are sweet things, comfortable things, those are, it's a wonderful compliment for someone to say your house is wonderful, but that's not what I mean here by wonderful. mainly for two reasons. First of all, pointing others to Christ is not always nice, is it? I mean, let's be real. It is, it is a very messy ordeal to point others to Christ. Gone are the days of thinking that you can just kind of go and give your three-point presentation to someone, and they immediately fall on their knees and become an instant disciple and just follow after Christ and renounce all sin and everything like that. That is seldom the situation. No, you are going and you are grueling with these people, sharing truth with them and, and, and having meeting after meeting after moment after moment and having, you know, side-by-side long-term relationship time sometimes with others. You know, discipleship and sharing Christ with others and that sort of thing. I, I love how, you know, uh, the race of faith in Hebrews 11.1 1 is described as, you know, hard. In fact, that word is agon. You know, we get our word agony from it. It's a a term that means, you know, it's an athletic term that means, you know, just fight. And so, pointing others to Christ is not always nice. It is uncomfortable sometimes to have gospel conversation. It is stressful sometimes to point lost loved ones to Christ when they don't want to have anything to do with it. You know, we even have people in our congr- from our congregation who are in other parts of the world where they have to be very careful pointing others to Christ or they could get arrested. So I don't mean wonderful in like, oh, that's wonderful or nice or sweet or something along those lines. But what I mean by wonderful is full of wonder. Amazing, stunning, glorious. So how is pointing others to Christ a wonderful thing? First of all, pointing others to Christ means you're pointing others to the Lamb of God. Verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him 
and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. By itself, that is a very cool statement. It is not a, 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 a hard, or a, it is an understandable thing that in all the old movies, you know, where all the people from the Middle East have British accents, <laughs> you know, um, and, and, you know, stories of Jesus' life. When it comes to this scene, John the Baptist sees Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The music just ramps up. In those old movies, like, you know, and sin of the world, you know, and that sort of thing. That, that, is, that is fully understandable by, by this very amazing statement. But what is the significance of this statement? Remember that John rightly applied Isaiah 40, verse 3 to himself. He said, you know, if, if we were to go back to that prophecy in Isaiah 40, you will see that its entirety really is verses 1 through 5, although John just uses verse 3. And let me just read that to you because it is a, it is a powerful thing. Isaiah 41 through 5 says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed in all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Originally, this was a prophecy for God's people, the Jews, to return to Him from exile. Verse 4 describes the terrain that would be between where the people were, probably Babylon, and where they needed to be, and it was incredibly hard. Valleys and mountains and, and all kinds of treacherous things, but every valley would be lifted up and every mountain be made low, and uneven ground would become level. In other words, what man could not do, God would do, and make that road to him simple and smooth and obvious. And now here's John, the voice crying in the wilderness among the Jordan, you know, among the people, you know, in the Jordan River, and he says, make straight the way of the Lord. And the next day he sees Jesus saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in other words, God's people worldwide were in exile, and we were held captive by an enemy kingdom known as sin. But God had done what He, what we basically could not do. He made the road to Him simple and smooth and obvious by providing Jesus the Lamb. Jesus the Lamb who, who then sacrificed, satisfying the wrath of God, and our warfare is now ended, and our iniquity is pardoned. And so by John saying, behold the Lamb, when he saw Jesus, he affirmed basically the truth of verse 5, that the glory of the Lord, there in Isaiah 40 verse 5, the glory of the Lord has been revealed, and that all flesh has seen it. And the way to that glory has zero obstacles because the Lamb had been provided. That's full of wonder. That is an amazing thing that His voice in the wilderness is crying out, saying, repent. Have your hearts broken before this God 
And then God, next day, provides the lamb. But not only that, pointing Christ, pointing mothers to Christ is not only pointing them to the Lamb of God, it is also pointing them to the Eternal One. Verse 30, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. If you remember the timeline from Luke, John the Baptist was conceived before Jesus and John was born before Jesus. So what did John the Baptist mean in verse 30 by, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me? It's like Troy saying he was before me. I'm the old man in the office, so to speak, and so Troy's just a few months younger than I am, and, and we'd do the math and we'd go, well, Troy, you're a liar, you know? Or if I said something like, you know, um, I was before, and, and I won't pick on anyone who's older than me in the room, but anyway, uh, but, but, but it will be like that. Here's, here's John, who is technically older by conception and by birth and by age, and he's saying, this person is before me. The only way this makes sense is because John was pointing out the eternality of Jesus. That's what he was doing, folks. He said, you know, and, and, and this is the statement that really connects this section to the opening of the book where verse 1 says, in the beginning was the Word. You know, verses kind of supporting the eternality of Christ, just to give you a little flavor of what we're talking about here is in John 8, 58, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Now, the I am statement does mean he was claiming to be God, but he also said he was before Abraham. That was a few hundred years before he existed on earth. Colossians 1.16, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Hebrews 1 verse 2, talking about Christ, says, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So this is, a, this is a wonderful thing because we are not pointing, you know, others when we say, Christ, you need to know him, that sort of thing. When we're pointing others to Christ, we are not pointing to some kind of finite prophet who said really great things. We're pointing to the eternal Son of God. We're pointing to the one who existed from all eternity. The third thing is, when we point others to Christ, we point them to the one confirmed by supernatural events. Jesus is baptized by John, and then the Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. And then in verse 33, he says, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So why did John not know Jesus was the Messiah since he was the cousin of Jesus? Family gatherings, those kinds of things, you didn't, you know, you didn't know John. And, and we really don't know the answer to that other than he said, this is something that God specifically gave to me that would confirm that this is the Messiah, and it happened just now. Jesus was confirmed for John through a supernatural event. And I don't think this is necessarily an issue, but if it is, 
I want to strongly encourage our folks, don't be afraid of the supernatural when explaining Jesus to others. There are multiple times where God stepped out of natural, explainable, everyday life all of the time to confirm His Son as the Messiah. In Matthew 3, on the account of Jesus' baptism there, not only does the Spirit descend on Jesus like a dove, but a voice comes from nowhere and says, this is my beloved Son whom I am well pleased. Same voice shows up during the transfiguration. And of course, we know the the big miracle, the most miraculous thing of all, God confirmed the, the, the Son of God, the Messiah, and that sort of thing in raising His Son from the dead. And we could bring in the miracles as well. The way of the Lord that John was preparing would be full of supernatural confirmation because the Lord was involved. You know, some, some people do some things and you kind of go, oh, that's Larry. Because you know Larry and his personality and that sort of thing, and so Larry would do what you were talking about. Sometimes people do some things and you go, really, Larry? So when we're talking about someone rising from the dead, when we talk about someone where the Holy Spirit's coming on, when we talk about this person is going to baptize others with the Holy Spirit and that sort of thing, we go, oh, yeah, it's God. It's God. It's how he, how he operates. Which makes perfect sense, you know, when, when, when John, you know, says what he says in verse 34, because finally when John pointed others to Christ... And when we point others to Christ, we point them to, number four, the Son of God. We'll land the plane with this point. Verse 34, John says, And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Both of those seen and borne witness are in the perfect tense, which gives an idea this is, this is the real thing here. We don't have time necessarily to be thorough here, but just to give you just some random verses that kind of point to this, Jesus as the Son of God points, number one, to His divinity. That's what we're talking about here. John 5, 18 says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him, because not only was He breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. By calling himself the Son of God or by Jesus being the Son of God, he was never some sort of demigod, some kind of Hercules or something like that. The Jews understood and knew that he was worthy of stoning because by calling yourself the Son of God, you were calling yourself God. So Jesus as the Son of God was divine. A way you can say that is that the Son of God is God the Son. but it also points to his authority. He has authority over demonic powers. Mark 3.11 says, and whatever the unclean spirit, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. He is the one who gives us eternal life. 1 John 5.12 says, whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. He is the one who enables us to overcome the world because of his authority. 1 John 5, 5 says, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So those are just some random verses pointing out to the fact that because he was the Son of God, he was the one who had all authority. 
And so just to wrap it up, what will you do with 2023? And I know, three fingers pointing back at me on this one. But what will you do with 2023? If your commitment to maybe self-discipleship, in other words, knowing Him, and your commitment to making disciples, making Him known, has maybe not been what you wanted it to be. Maybe you thought, you know, man, I wish I did more in the category of knowing Him. Maybe I, I need to do more in the category of making Him known. I just get so bogged down with work or responsibilities with family and other things like that, or, or distractions, those kinds of things. Maybe you, just being honest with yourself, would answer, I, I, just, I just need to improve in this area. Well, let me flip those two things, those two points, because Troy and I were talking, this, we were, the elders prayed this morning, and Troy and I were talking this morning, he made an excellent point, and I agree with him, that one of the reasons John could be so bold in pointing others to Christ is because he was swept up in the wonderfulness of it. He didn't wake up every morning going, uh, I got another, I got another man, mandate on my life. You know, I got to do my responsibilities. Here I go to the Jordan again. Repent, 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 you know, or something like that. And that's just not what, that, that's not what was happening with John. So let me encourage you if this is you. I think on some level this is all of us, but if this is you, I need to improve in knowing God, or I need to improve in making Him known. I'm, I'm all about this discipleship thing you're talking about for 2023, Pastor Bill. I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to go all in here. Don't start with decrease so that He might increase. That's a good start. It's not necessarily a bad thing to start there, but don't start with duty. Don't start with responsibility. Don't start with going home and, you know, going through the books and saying, okay, I can, I can you know, not eat <clears throat> this. You know, I can, I can skip the, uh, you know, the pack of Oreos every month and help Sydney. That's not, there's nothing wrong with that. But let me, let me challenge you in a different way. Start with, be swept up in the wonder of who Christ is. Be swept up in the wonderfulness of the gospel. Let the, the symphony, if you have enough, enough of imagination, let the symphony rise up inside of you as you Read his word and you go, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Be swept up in the wonderfulness of that. And then decrease. Then decrease. Bunch of single guys hanging out with their single friend. They're like, man, why did you do, you know, all of that for Sally? And he goes, are you kidding me? Sally is amazing. I'll give the world for her. Be swept up in the wonderfulness of who Christ is. And be a nut like John the Baptist that a month into this year, 
three months into this year, six months into this year, your buddies are hanging around you and going, what in the world? Why would you do this for this Jesus? You go, are you kidding me? Jesus is amazing. I would give the world for him. Let's know him plus make him known and be disciples and disciple makers this year. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you will sweep us up into who you are. Perhaps, Lord, there's someone here that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior. To them, Lord, you're about as wonderful as a pack of Oreos. Perhaps you can give them a sweet little moment in their life, but you really don't matter to them. I pray, oh God, that you would allow them to be able to hear John's message in calling them to repent. Free them, Lord, from the kingdom of darkness, from the kingdom of sin. Lord, help them to see that you have made the pathway simple and obvious. You didn't make it easy, but you made it simple. And so I pray that whoever this might be speaking to right now, that they would repent, they would confess their sins to you, turn from their sin, and trust in the Lamb. who shed his blood to satisfy the wrath of God on their head, the wrath of God on their soul, so that they might be forgiven and restored to you, so that they might be able to walk down that simple path and be near you, O God. For those of us who know you, O God, and we can say, yeah, that's me, that's that's me, I, I need to... I need to know him more. I need to make him known. I need to be a disciple. And I need to be a disciple maker more than I have been in 2022. God, I pray that you would help them, Father, not to jump through hoops. Lord, it's exhausting to try to approach you the way the Pharisees were teaching the people to approach you. But it is easy and light to approach you by grace, by being swept up in who you are, by being so enamored and so amazed by the truth of who you are, by your glory, by your goodness, by your mercy, by your grace, by your kindness, by your love, that we sit around our friends and explain all of the sacrifices as worth it because you are worth it, Lord. So I pray that we would be caught up in your glory and in who you are. And in doing so, Lord, may we make you known. I pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.